Hey, First Readers, Tim here. These days, everyone and their grandmother has a podcast. But did you know that producing a high-quality weekly podcast for several years actually costs quite a bit? There are web hosting fees, recording equipment, and software subscriptions. Not to mention that each of our short episodes takes a couple hours to prepare and write, and then another couple hours to record, edit, and publish. I mean, I'm not complaining. This is work that we love, and Rachel, Rosie, and I value the chance to provide this service to the church. But I'm sharing this with you because we want you to know that if first reading is a resource that has been valuable to you, we'd welcome your help to offset some of the cost of putting all this together. You can help us keep the show running by making a donation over at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Please consider making your gift a regular monthly thing, and you can set up monthly automatic donations through that PayPal donate button. Thanks again for being a part of this with us. Now on to the pod. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast that inspires confident preaching and teaching from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rosie Candethel, a PhD candidate at Emory University. And I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. Our incomparable co-host, Dr. Rachel Wren, is off this week. The first reading for October 23rd, 2022 is Joel chapter 2, verses 23 to 32, and this week we have a special guest with us to help us work through this passage. That is right. We're grateful to welcome to our Zoom studio, Dr. Mari Yorstad. Dr. Yorstad uh, is academic dean and professor of Hebrew Bible at Vancouver School of Theology, which means she is joining us from the fair and far off lands of Canada. Mari is a biblical scholar who specializes on issues of environment, land, migration, and belonging in the Hebrew Bible. And although she joins us from way up north today, she actually did her doctoral work just up the road from Emory, where both Tim and I uh, are working on our PhDs. Uh, and she was working at Duke University in North Carolina, where she studied with one of our favorites, the amazing Hebrew Bible scholar Ellen Davis. Today's passage from Joel is full of images of the land and ecology. So we're especially grateful to have Mari's expertise and insight for this conversation. She is the author of The Hebrew Bible and Environmental Ethics, Humans, Non-Humans, and the Living Landscape, published by Cambridge in 2020. You can also find her published work in a number of academic journals, including the Journal of Biblical Literature, Horizons in Biblical Theology, and the Journal for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture. So if you like what you hear in our conversation today, be sure to check out more of Mari's work. Dr. Mari Yorstad, a hearty welcome to First Reading. Thank you. Yeah, it's so great to have you with us, Mari. And we usually start with just a little bit of background for our listeners. Uh, Rosie just mentioned your interests in migration and the land. And I understand that you come by some of that from your own experience. You've lived in a lot of different places, Norway, Canada, mm -hmm. uh, the American South, and then back to Canada now. And uh, mm -hmm. maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about your scholarly journey. How did, how did you come to focus on some of these themes of land and migration in the Hebrew Bible? And, and sort of what brought you into this field in the first place? I never intended to become a biblical scholar or really to study theology. It was really immigration that got me there. Uh -huh. So when I finished my undergrad, I wanted to stay in Canada. And there was no post-graduation student visa at that point that was easy to access. Mm -hmm. It was quite 
quite narrow. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, I just ended up applying to do a master's of theology (laughs) instead, which was much easier. And then it sort of immediately uh, got very excited about the Hebrew Bible. And when I was looking at PhD programs, it was Ellen Davis's work that that really drew me to Duke. And questions of the environment have just been an interest since I was uh, young. I remember getting this book from the library that talked about trees and toilet paper and being just all out panic about <laughs> toilet paper. Uh, I've continued to use toilet paper, just so that's sad. But anyways, I just remember that as a moment where like realizing that everyday life has environmental consequences. Mm-hmm. And as a child, feeling quite overwhelmed by that. Not that it's gotten less overwhelming, but. Well, I would love to hear more about how you came to be interested in belonging in the Hebrew Bible. Um, And I find that to be such an inclusive way of thinking about identity in these texts. And I'm intrigued by the explicit way that you draw upon both human and non-human life in your most recent book. Could you say a little bit more about how you think about this living landscape in environmental ethics? Like, how do we expand our notions of belonging to include all living beings, including non-human? I just preached for our chapel for the school on Psalm 127, and I probably shouldn't explain all the steps, but basically I was talking about strawberries. Ah. Um, there's no mention of strawberries in the town, unfortunately. <laughs> but that I was trained to think of strawberries as these little like engines that with their strawberry instinct just like churn out strawberries. And then reading Robin Kimmerer and talking to her, writing about how strawberries shaped her idea of a world full of gifts Mm. and that the strawberries give you strawberries as gifts. And that was so different. But then also having to think about that in relation to being a settler here Mm. and being an immigrant here. And that's both of those are very true for me in a way that maybe many people don't experience quite as simultaneously. Mm. Like the idea of like, oh, we're a nation of immigrants, which Canada says much in the way that the U.S. Mm -hmm. does, for many people means either like grandparents or great-grandparents or even further back. And like I'm currently in an immigration (laughs) application situation. (laughs) And it's really easy to think of of immigrant as a sort of vulnerable position, but it coincides with being a settler. And so belonging isn't this like easy thing that I can just embrace and be excited about and be like, I'm going to connect with the cedars. I'm going to get to know this land. I both want to do that and also realize that that is difficult and problematic. So I think belonging to me is the innocence of it is really complicated. And I want to learn different ways of living and thinking about belonging so that it's not just sort of like, well, I've got the right to be anywhere. Move over. Uh Everyone else. Um, Yeah. Well, friends, we could probably do a whole podcast on Mari's fascinating research, but it's probably time that we get to the actual first reading for this week. Uh, Mari, would you mind reading the passage for us? And uh, before you do, just let us know what translation you're using. Yes. So this is Joel 2, 23 to 32 from the NRSV. And if you are reading in the JPS translation, just note that the versification is a little different. So if you're following along there, I'm reading into chapter three, whereas if you're reading in the English Bible, um, we're going to stay in chapter two. Right. That's helpful to know. Okay. So this is the uh, text. 
O children of Zion, be glad, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, the Lord, am your God, and there is no other. And my people should never again be put to shame. Then afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heaven and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Thanks, Mari. Let's start with our usual introduction and background to this passage. So Joel 2, perhaps obviously, comes in the middle of what is a very short prophetic book uh, with only three chapters if you're in the NRSV, or, but if you're in the JPS or you're using Hebrew versification, it's four chapters. Uh, it's among the so-called minor prophets in the Book of the Twelve. But could you give listeners perhaps a broad introduction to the book? Where are we in this reading? What can we help audiences understand about the historical and social context for the prophecies of Joel? So we don't know tons about Joel because the book doesn't have a date formula at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the language is also quite flexible. So it, the book of Joel describes some kind of devastating event. It is either the invasion of a human army or an army of locusts. And you can find indications either way to support either position, but neither is clear. It seems that the book is intentionally written so that it can be read with either kind of disaster in mind. Mm -hmm. We don't know anything about Joel himself, Mm -hmm. per se, though he does seem to have priestly background. So he uses language of sanctification, uh, fasting, lament, things that are associated with the temple. And and that temple language and some of the language of restoration and punishment on the nations seems to suggest that it post-dates the building of the temple that was built in like five something. Mm -hmm. So um, return of the exiles to Judah, the temple they built that you read about in um, like Haggai, for example, it seems to postdate that temple, but it, it's always really difficult to know exactly because prophetic language is built to work for different times. Right. So right. that's kind of as close as we can get, but we could be wrong. <laughs> There's so much that we don't know. Right? Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll we'll probably not be able to resolve the question. Uh, well, maybe we will. We'll figure it out right here and right now, whether this is talking <laughs> about locusts or whether it's talking about armies. <laughs> well, even if we can't solve that, um, 
I'm so used to reading in the prophets about armies, about conquest, mm -hmm. but it strikes me as kind of unique, perhaps, that this would use either an image or uh, or an actual uh, prophecy about something happening agriculturally or, or as a as a plague on the land. Is is that is that unique here, or does that come up in other places, or what do you think? Yes. So I would say this is part of a major stream of prophetic literature that goes back to the covenant blessings and curses in especially Deuteronomy, but really throughout Torah, uh, where the the connection between the land and the people is very close and responsive. And it's not. We often tend to think of it as sort of some sort of like automatic, like you do this. And then you get no rain or that it's a really kind of organized system, mm -hmm. but it's quite a lot more. It requires quite a lot more sort of interpretation than that. It's, it's not kind of just retribution immediately. Um, but still there is like a clear connection between the state of the land and the religious, moral, social, economic place of the people. And so I would say Joel fits into that tradition. Mm -hmm. And because that tradition includes both agricultural and warlike consequences, it also makes sense that Joel doesn't quite distinguish between those two. You kind of get two birds for one stone uh -huh. kind of situation. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's not unusual. It's maybe one of the most extended descriptions that we have, mm -hmm. especially for such a short book. Right, right. Yeah, when I think of Joel, I think of locusts. That's my association yes. with the book of yeah. Joel. <laughs> Most of it is locust eating stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Deuteronomy and sort of the, the blessings and curses of the covenant. As I was uh, preparing for this, I stumbled across, somewhat accidentally, um, Deuteronomy 11, and uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it for us and for our, our listeners. So starting in verse 13 in the NRSV, if you will only heed his every commandment that I'm commanding you today, says Moses about God's commandments, loving the Lord your God and serving him with all your heart and all your soul, then, and this is what triggered my sort of recollection here, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, and you'll gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you will eat your fill. And that's sort of that connection that you were talking about between mm -hmm. the behavior of the people and their experience of the land. Uh, and then there's uh, following that sort of the threat that those things will be taken away mm -hmm. if they're unfaithful to the the covenant. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting, perhaps a, a almost a, a literary connection with uh, mm -hmm. the language that's being used here in, in Joel. Is that kind of some of what you're talking about with the connections mm -hmm. there? Yeah. And especially, so listeners won't be able to tell, but I have all these papers hanging behind me <laughs> and they're uh, an article I'm working on, on water and the places it collects. Mm. So clouds, rain, cisterns, streams, springs, right. It's basically top to bottom. <laughs> and God's involvement in rain is mentioned almost every time rain is mentioned. And especially giving rain in its season is one of the main responsibilities of God. And so and so when rain either doesn't come or comes at the wrong time, the consequences for 
ancient Israelite agriculture were just devastating, mm-hmm. just bad. And so the the kind of level of devastation you see in Joel and then having the promise of rain in its season, I think is exactly like it's a direct reference to Deuteronomy, sort of both both remember those curses and like you have seen them now and also remember the promises and those you will see those too. Yeah, that's that's helpful to me as a reader who's on the east side of North America, mm-hmm. where I take rain as something that's just sort of a given for granted. But even these days in the, the western part of North America, uh, rain is not a given. Mm-hmm. And increasingly more so with climate change, that helps to remember that this image of early and late rains at their time would have been part of the, I don't know how to say this, maybe part of the normal anxieties of people mm-hmm. living in Joel's time and in Joel's place, yeah. uh, because that was, it was not a given. It was something that was very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I'm struck here by the beauty of this imagery, um, which might be something we could invite listeners to enjoy again, the sound of rain falling early and later, and that being connected to the abundance of grain, wine, and oil. Um, mm-hmm. How do you read this connection between the joy of the people in God and the environment? What was the importance of, um, as you've already mentioned, abundant rain early and later? And then this kind of, as you say, a memory in the verse, it says, as before. So mm-hmm. evoking a nostalgia for um, that seasonal rain and the abundance that might be connected to that. Well, so part of what you don't get when you just read this passage is it's the quite long description of devastation that comes at the beginning of the book. And it it goes through basically every agricultural product of ancient Israel and its connection to daily life. Mm-hmm. So it's both like, you will not have anything to eat. Mm-hmm. Your animals will not have anything to eat. And you will have nothing to offer in the temple. And the last one probably seems sort of like the extra to us, but it basically means that your worship life is not going to work. Mm-hmm. Like sacrifice is not a fun addition to ancient Israelites' worship life. It is at the heart of it. So like your connection with God is really being jeopardized here. Yeah. And then in these promises, all of those things are being restored. So um, 2.14 um, it says, who knows, but he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind for meal offering and drink offering to the Lord your God. Mm. And basically what the, the verse is saying is, if if God changes God's mind, God might give you the material for sacrifice again. That is not a big part of our religious life, mm. but the the abundance that follows in two makes makes all of the things that have not been possible, possible again, Um, which is part of why there's also all this direct address to the land. So you will eat. Mm -hmm. Trees will have water. Animals will have feed. And you can resume temple worship. Uh, So in some ways, it's like all that's being promised is like normal life will work with some like eschatological imagery as well. (laughs) Um, But the abundance is really... uh, a return to sort of delightful normalness. Right. There's like a there's like an ecosystem that they depend on and worship is a mm-hmm. part of that ecosystem. Yeah. 
And so when one part of that system breaks, the the whole stability of their way of life yeah. is is put into peril. And mm-hmm. so they need a restoration of the whole thing, not only worship, yeah. but also the the land and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And you can't, th- there's no way of really restoring one part with in isolation from the other. Mm-hmm. And rain being really the, the most important factor. Without rain, everything goes. With rain, it's all restored. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a sermon right there, right? <laughs> the interconnectedness <laughs> of... of- yeah. Of everything in our whole ecosystem and, and the tendency that that folks like me often have to separate out uh, worship or, or spiritual or religious life from our place in the ecology of Earth. If Joel's onto something here, it's that there's a interconnectedness and a relatedness mm-hmm. of all of that together. Maybe we can learn something from that ancient worldview, yeah. I actually thought about the pandemic highlighting some of this, that uh, Mm -hmm. there was suddenly a realization that what was going on outside um, and the disease, you know, that was maybe out there uh, changed the way that we worshipped, changed Mm -hmm. the way that we thought about death and life, you know, Mm -hmm. as in meeting together. So Mm. I don't know, there's like, like Tim said, maybe Joel's onto something that our preachers can borrow. Yeah. (laughs) Verse 26 in the NRSV suggests that God has dealt, quote, wondrously with the people. Um, but that struck me as a, a, a maybe an optimistic way of looking at what has happened. Are there ways that we consider this Hebrew word? So the uh, the word is... Hafli. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Hafli, yeah. from Pele. Hafli, yeah. yeah. So yeah. from Pele, right. So um, which is to make a wonder or to make a sight out of... Um, but what's the prophet trying to convey here? Is that too optimistic of a translation? Or, I mean, how could we look at this word that God is making them a wonder or a spectacle? I think so. I think we, we tend in kind of modern religious language to think of things that's kind of being either positive or negative or good or bad. And often in the Hebrew Bible, things aren't quite either. It just depends on your relationship to it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of language in Joel that is clearly referencing the Exodus. And I think this is one of those examples. Also, all the talk about columns of fire and smoke. I think the reason why slaves are mentioned might also be the Exodus. Mm-hmm. And maybe even locusts too. And yeah, yeah locusts, the, the talk of survivors, like a lot of that. It's not a retelling of the Exodus, but it's sort of like, kind of like, remember Deuteronomy, also remember Exodus. And... And it also connects with the day of the Lord, Mm -hmm. which runs throughout Joel. And the day of the Lord starts out as being the day of the locust slash army attack and then becomes the day of the punishment of the nations. Either way, it's terrifying. It's not it's not like a day to like stand around the throne of God and sing songs. It's it's destruction and despair for someone. Like God's wonders are not easy, but you kind of want to be on the right side of them. Right. <laughs> uh, so there's no way of, of making that easy or comfortable. Yeah, it's like, it's a word that is neither positive or negative, but where you stand in relation to it makes it either a kind of saving act or a really scary destruction thing. Right, right. That That's really helpful to me because... Mm-hmm. Uh, the English word wonder 
I usually take that to be a uh, uniformly positive <laughs> sort yeah. of word. But the the Hebrew word there, uh, leafli, is uh, wonder in the sense of well, it's it's an it's an intimate word. It's it's about God being very active and involved mm-hmm. in a yeah. powerful way in their circumstances, either bringing destruction or bringing salvation, but mm-hmm. a present and active. God, a God who's not been off somewhere else, but has been working mm-hmm. right next to you, very yeah. involved in what you're doing. So in a way, just to extend the ecology metaphor, God is also a part of this ecosystem in a very direct mm-hmm. and active way. This might be the time to start talking about shame. So um, it, there's the repetition of the phrase, my people should never again be put to shame in verses 26 and 27. Is there anything we could say to help our audiences understand the social context for shame here and maybe why the prophet underscores this phrase? Is this part of a rhetorical strategy, poetry? What does this concept mean here? How does it work here? Well, so this I think is where possibly comparing translations would be helpful, mm. but but basically the English unearthly is not helping you here. Yeah. So Joel 1.11 in the NRSV is, be dismayed, you farmers, wail, you wine dressers. And in, in Hebrew, it's really be ashamed, you farmers. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the devastation at the beginning is, is expressed as a source of shame. Like you ought to be ashamed that this is happening. And then, so the restoration then responds to that, saying, you will not be ashamed like this again. And 111 and 226 are the only two times shame as such is mentioned. But in between, you have um, talk about God making Israel a byword. Mm -hmm. Zion. They're talking about a Zion. Mm -hmm. So it's Judah, but like they are being put on display uh, that everyone will look at what is happening to them and know that they've done something. So I think the repetition of that word or that phrase in 226 is really about assurance hmm. that that like this is really not going to happen again. And it's it's been such a the event is so big and so devastating. You need it said twice. Huh. Uh, but it's not um, it's not a shame that is separated from what's happening. There's a sense of responsibility. Uh, that whether it's an army or a locust attack, the people have in some way been involved in it coming mm-hmm. in a way that's not clearly laid out. So shame bookends um, the devastation and the promise of restoration. Yeah, so it, it it's sort of a way of interpreting the consequences of what has come upon them with social language. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I wanted to maybe take us into talking about verse 32 there at the end of the passage, uh, because this uh, this whole thing about the, the day of the Lord and the pouring out of the Spirit and all of that is mm-hmm. very familiar to me in my Christian tradition from the story of Pentecost in Acts 2 mm-hmm. and Peter's speech and the the reference to this text there. What do you what do you make of the language of salvation here? Um and and how does it compare to maybe some of the ways that we typically think about what salvation means? In terms of preaching, 
I think you, you are going to get the most out of this passage if you delay the Pentecost connection for as long as you can, mm. which is not to say it's not there, right, right? right? Like, And part of that is that the day of the Lord is not a day, it's many days. And so it makes sense to read several events as being related mm-hmm. without Pentecost being the key to Job. How that relates to salvation like Joel's language is, it sort of starts off being about normal life and then it like ups the ante a little bit. So you have the pouring out of the spirit, there's additions, um, and then um, all this like Exodus language about blood and fire and columns and smoke. And and I think thinking about Exodus here is helpful um, and holding that together with the day of the Lord. Because if you think about the Exodus and the, the plague of the firstborns, Mm-hmm. That is not a that is not a good day, and and really they're escaping, they're escaping Egypt, but they're also escaping God's coming on Egypt. Right. And I think that's the kind of so this isn't like salvation in heaven forever after. It is being in the midst of God's active work, which is often a terrifying place to be, and being protected in that space. So the the person they're escaping is God um, at the same time as they're being saved from the nations slash locust. Well, that puts a whole different spin on the concept of the spirit of God being poured out, the sort of spirit of God going through the the homes of the Egyptians and the Israelites in Mm -hmm. Egypt. And and that was such a scary scene. And I think there is a sense in which like the passage is saying like everyone will be a Moses. Mm. which is a position of like great dignity, but it's also being placed in a in a spot where God's deliverance is really needed as opposed to sort of like a context where you can be like, well, I mean, God is nice, but we're doing okay. Uh-huh. That that kind of connection to God often comes at a time of great need, which Joel very much is. Mm. Both here and I think in Acts 2, what, what you've done is kind of transform that scene from one that is not a comfort and empowering one. A party. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not a party, right? It's not like, but these tongues of fire, this terrifying moment, you know, mm-hmm. where it's, it's, and the little comedy, it's like, oh, they're all drunk. They're speaking in different <laughs> languages. But there's something really weird going on, yeah. right? And so, I mean, you've highlighted it both here and I think for anyone that's thinking about the connection to Acts 2, of shifting that to something that's mm-hmm. actually quite scary. It's opening up to s- something new. So again, it's it's not so much, it's like, how are you, where do you stand in relation to this rather than is this a good event or a bad event? It's all about your, your community's position in relation to it. And so that like the terror is always there, but there are ways of, of being kind of with God in that terror and then ways of being against God in that terror. Mm-hmm. Well, you've nudged us toward some things that we would want to maybe offer as preaching potential pitfalls. Um, Mari, Tim, what do you see as places preachers could really get into trouble here? And maybe if I could just prompt you, Mari, to uh, elaborate a little bit. You you mentioned that uh, this concept of the day of the Lord is not just one day, not just uh, f- mm. sort of fulfilled in Pentecost, but that there's a multiplicity to it. Can you say a little more about that? That was an interesting point. Pretty much all prophetic literature is 
It's written for a particular situation that tends to be in the past, but it's intentionally flexible. Hmm. And so it relates to kind of many situations. And in some ways, I don't mean this like dismissively, but any situation. So you are supposed to be able to read it for your own day. And um, I think like movies like Left Behind have made us think Hmm. of God's coming in a sort of singular way. Like that God is sort of either here or or not. And that when God comes, there'll be this like one thing. And and that's just not how God appearing in the Bible looks like. It's not that there isn't sort of like finality in some of the eschatological language, but the, the day of the Lord is mentioned in many biblical books in relation to different events. And it's not, it's not crazy for example, to maybe think of the pandemic as a kind of day of the Lord. Um, and I don't mean that in like a, um, you've all been bad, God <laughs> sent the virus. Um, I mean, it has like this big experience of devastation. Um, and so it's a moment where we really need God and it can be difficult to figure out exactly what a relationship with God looks like. Um, there are clearly like broken relationships, but there's not like, one explanation of blame like it's a very complex situation where many people have suffered greatly that has many kind of analogies to different descriptions of days of the day of the lord that we see in the bible mm-hmm. um and i think in terms of like how that relates to preaching and pitfalls i think the sort of way to go with joel and um prophetic text is often to think in analogy rather than symbolism And it's a little hard for me to explain that difference, but I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. So reading this and just seeing Pentecost or seeing some sort of like struggle of the soul, I just don't think it will get you very far. Um, But the, you know, it doesn't have to be as big as the pandemic, but I think about here last year, we had devastating floods. Like I had students who couldn't come to things because their road to get out of their community was gone. Mm. They were stuck. And um, and again, that is it's this like community devastating event with really, again, complex kind of explanations. So some of it has to do with logging. Some of it has to do with climate change, um, like normal flood patterns were disrupted. There's human responsibility. And then there's weather systems that just happen and they collide and it was bad. Um, and combined with wildfires, it was very, right. very bad. Using that analogy and thinking of what are the ways in which we're responsible? What are the ways in which we are suffering because of things we have we have no responsibility for? And there might be other people who are responsible. What are the ways where we just don't know why this is happening? Like Joel is like able to hold those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think can really then help us think about what that means in our relationship to God. Whereas just thinking about Pentecost you get one thing right? rather than really thinking about where your community is, what your community is going through. And I mean, the last sort of really big locust devastation was in 2020. Right. Like, I think it's very tempting with the Hebrew Bible, especially to go quickly to symbolism and metaphor. And obviously there's tons of metaphor in the text, um, but to sort of be like, what else can the text be about? Because this is too strange. <laughs> And I think trying to really think about 
what what are the people of the text experiencing? Why are they putting in this kind of language? What are the what are the things they're struggling with? What are they looking for from God? Can make it feel less distant, even even though the cultural difference is huge, like that's real. Mm-hmm. But but they were people too. Yeah, right. In in many many of the same ways that we are people. <laughs> Well, I I think for the sake of time, especially, we should really push into just some wrap-up comments about ways that preachers could take this text and sort of set up a, a bit of a framework for how preachers could use this as the primary text for their sermon. I, I mean, for me, the one that just kind of keeps is that the day of the Lord is, um, you know, a, a, a potential daily occurrence. Uh, I find that a really rich way of of thinking about this text and others in the prophetic corpus. I like that, Rosie. I'd, I might even pull in a, a non-lectionary text <laughs> from Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. Zehayom asadonai. Uh, this is the day on which God has acted. This is a day of the Lord. You know, for me, for me, the uh, sort of preaching angle that jumps out at me from our conversation today is that the way that this passage snaps into focus, at least for me, the interconnectedness of our uh, whole ecosystem of the natural world, our own human experience, and our connection with the divine, that this is all part of uh, an, uh, an ecosystem together, and where when one part of it is, is broken, it has an impact all around. I think some of the comments that we had earlier about the ways that this connects to the experience of the pandemic and how that uh, that devastation in the natural world also had an impact on the experience of faith communities in worship. I think drawing those things together has a lot of potential for a sermon that could also uh, lean a congregation into dependence on God for restoration and wholeness and uh, motivation to attend to both the natural world and the human realm as a part of the divine, you know, as a part of our life of worship as well. So that would be sort of a framework that I might propose for a, for a sermon. Do you have thoughts as well, Murray? The thing that really feels so contemporary about Joel to me is the sense of being in the middle of an event that you have unclear powers to get yourself out of. And I think thinking like both about climate change, the pandemic, I think here, but I think this is true kind of maybe across the world, uh, the cost of living has just kind of been spiraling out of control. and, and none of those are things that individuals, like no amount of recycling is just <laughs> going to solve it all. Right. Um, and so I think Joel can be a helpful companion to think about what does it look like to be in that kind of situation? And if we think of this as a locust event, there was nothing people could really do. And there's still not tons, like we can spray, but once a locust swarm has gotten out of control, it is hard. Like it travels fast mm-hmm. and it eats everything. And what does it mean to like rely on God in those situations? What kind of responsibilities do we have? And what kind of relationships to other people do we have in those situations? And I don't think Joel has, like, there is no, like, three takeaways. Right. <laughs> but, but I think it's a really rich text for thinking through those issues and that sense of just powerlessness mm-hmm. and, and fear. Um, 
And it doesn't end there, right? That's not the end of the book, but that is a big part of the book. Dr. Mario Jorstad, um, an honor to have you as our special guest this week. Um, thank you for being with the First Reading Podcast family today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I, yeah. I have not spent much time in the book of Joel, and I'm inspired to go back and give it a closer look. Well, folks, that'll be a wrap for today. If you liked what you heard this week, there's plenty more over at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can subscribe to us there or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We also post our episodes on Facebook so you can listen there and interact with us if you'd like. If you found this resource helpful, please consider hitting the donate button over at the website to help sustain the podcast with either a one-time or a recurring donation. If you're not in a position to contribute now, that's fine. You can also help by sharing the podcast with your friends and colleagues, strangers on the street, but especially with the preachers in your life. We want to make sure that we say thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that they've given us that helps to sustain the podcast. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for some extra music behind the reading. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening and for interacting with us. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rosie Candethal. Have a blessed week.